This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We have here with us Steve Hoke. He's the CEO of Virtual Power Systems. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here, thanks for having us. I'm gonna take a stab at explaining what you guys do and then you can take it from there, Steve. Um, so what Virtual Power Systems does is um, create software to manage power provisioning in the data center. Um, you can dynamically allocate more power to a rack if it needs it. Um, you can uh, reduce the amount of redundancy or reliability in a rack if the application doesn't need it. Um, you, the software basically treats the, um, the total amount of energy um, or power available in, in the data center as a single pool. Um, and then from that pool, you can um, allocate power as needed to various components. And um, Steve, you can take it from here, explain how this thing works. I think it'd be helpful just kind of a quick history of kind of evolution of data center and how this this whole need for software-defined power is and, and what we're doing has come about. And I'll make it quick, but it leads into how we're doing. Um, you know, I think most people forget, you know, it wasn't long ago that Windows NT came out, right, in the, in the mid-90s. And that kind of set off you know, the whole march to data centers, distributed applications, server clusters, right? And we, we were able to do a lot more. And uh, in, in the 2000s, we started clustering servers and applications and building data centers. And, and at that time, it, it created an environment where compute was very underutilized, right? Uh, and uh, server sprawl was a real problem. And, and that's where VMware came in, and a company I spent some time with was saying, well, we could take um, virtualization that we saw in the mainframe, and if we saw that and put that on an x86 architecture, we could do some interesting things. And and the main thing was consolidate servers, huge consolidation rates, 10 to 1. Uh, as we know now, virtualization really changed everything and set off um, cloud, and what is now the software-defined data center. And, and it really began this march of using abstraction of software to solve these um, you know, inefficient architectures in the rest of the data center. So that led to uh, data storage virtualization in the storage industry. We virtualized the network. Really, the only thing left is that hasn't been impacted by software is the power control plane. And uh, most of the way data centers, particularly in Western Europe and the United States, are being architected, um, are no longer needed, right? We are over-provisioning power for, for availability and re 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 resiliency, um, not so much for the anticipation of growth. And, and since then, all sorts of technologies have come along uh, to make applications and compute available, right? So if power goes down, we just move workloads. Well, this has kind of left a very expensive archaic architecture um, in most traditional uh, data centers where power is stranded as you said, or not used efficiently or over-provision. And it's the only part of the data center and cloud architectures where software uh, really hasn't 
been applied to solve that efficiency. And, and I think most, we're seeing more and more peaky week, workloads and, and uh, uh, that's going to continue. But I think originally most of it was for compliance and the redundancy of power to make sure if there's a power failure, your application data was still available. But nowadays you can migrate a VM and you replicate your data across metro clusters. And so if power is predicted to go down, which often, you know, you have four or five other ways to recover. And so um, the premise of, of putting in a software-defined power control plane is to bring the same efficiencies that software-defined technology has brought to compute, network, and storage. Right? Um, get in and, and put software controls in to observe and manage uh, power behavior based on workloads, availability, cost. And then, as you said, pool those power resources, and we're coming across more and more power resources, everything from battery backups and storage to green uh, uh, to other grids. And uh, just like uh, virtualization at compute allowed you to pool compute, um, once we embed into the power grid or the power infrastructure in a data center at the rack and shelf level, we now have hooks for essentially all the power energy management control and optimization across the data center. And several companies have attempted this kind of thing. Um, they didn't necessarily use the same exact same technology, uh, maybe didn't try to implement it in the same way, but uh, the, this idea of software control power provisioning isn't new um, and some companies have um, tried and failed. So why you and, and why now? I, I think the idea and, and has been around for some time, uh, especially as we got into hyperscale architectures and the you know AWS, uh, Azure, Open Compute starts looking at you know non-standard uh, data center architectures to address the issue. Um, there was a number of issues, right? Uh, early on, lithium-ion batteries were expensive; form factors weren't. Um, you know, appropriate for the data center. Those prices have dropped. We've got more effective form factors. And, you know, the competition in the market and the cost of running data centers and the cost of power associated with have become a big enough problem to scale uh, that customers are now willing to adopt those technologies. Is lithium ion a prerequisite for using your product? It's not a prerequisite. Let me kind of explain how we look at the software-defined power platform. And, and you'll understand how batteries play in that. The first phase is, much like server virtualization, had to be embedded in servers, OEMs, and to really get uh, mainstream market adoption. We're working with Schneider, Artisan, Vertiv, all the major power component players to put in the base level controls and hooks, right? So they sh as they refresh their, their power shelves and, and their components in these data centers, they're going to be uh, upgrading those and refreshing their firmware with BPS-enabled technology. So that's the first foundation to get into the root of the power architecture within the data centers. Once we do that, we use a combination of our ICE switch, our ICE software, which controls ICE switch and ICE block, to do a number of things. Um, one of the biggest value adds is that immediate trap into the over-provision or st uh, stranded power, right? That's kind of the equivalent of the 10 to 1 consolidation ratio in, in physical to virtual servers, right? So our premise is once you go software to find power and we're embedded into the components, 
If you're an existing data center operator, we would allow you to tap into that stranded power and you can actually increase your IT deployments by 50 to 60% without expanding your physical space or uh, bringing in more power. Partnering with the component players, and Schneider's very forward looking on this, getting into their natural refresh cycles is, is very important, right? Point of entry of server virtualization was migrating to high density blades. Right? That's how the server market really accepted virtualization. It's like, okay, we could use that to get off of these servers, towers, and racks and go to high density. So um, the embedded strategy with the power component is kind of similar. It's like, what's the compelling reason for Amazon to upgrade you know, artisan power shelves? Well, we have this BPS intelligence that makes each PSU one more percent efficient. Well, one more percent efficiency across every PSU in 26 AWS data, that's a big deal. So that first wave of value is get embedded into the power components, right? And tap into that stranded power and immediately increase the amount of IT density, number of customers you can put into a data center or on a platform. So are, are lithium ion batteries better for this application than lead acid? Lithium ion, I think, is the most advanced. It's not just our particular application. I think it's just what customers are becoming more comfortable with. I think their form factors are smaller. Uh, they are more predictable than other form factors of batteries. Uh, the supply chain on lithium ion is, is more broadly available worldwide. Uh, although, um, you know, one of the barriers to battery adoption into data centers is supply chain, right? We have cities uh, like Amsterdam and countries like the Netherlands, by 2021, uh, every vehicle in their cities has to be uh, electric, right? It uses similar technology that we're using in lithium ion. And so world supply chain uh, of, and availability of lithium ion is gonna be something we have to pay attention to. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's any one, it's the most advanced, it's the most stable, I think it lasts the longest. The, you know, we have to be aware of how much space this technology is taking up within the data center. So the form factors of lithium ion uh, are good. Um, and uh, you know, just like chips will get cheaper and disk will get cheaper, uh, lithium ion continues to get cheaper. Can you explain ice block and ice switch? The switch is a piece of hardware. Um, it's, we're actually working with third-party manufacturers, so we don't want to be a hardware company. So uh, right now, CUI uh, manufactures the ice switch. Schneider's looking at uh, doing a version of it as well. So fundamentally, we get into the power components. Once we go in and add ice switch, which now controls or federates with the Schneider's and the Artisans and the Vertives, because we now have hooks into those controls, uh, the switch control is the federation mechanism that controls the power components that we're embedding, right? And it also controls the ice block. Now what the ice block does is take lithium ion technology, brings batteries into the rack or end of row, and now takes battery from where most data center operators think of battery as power storage and backup. We're now moving that into production power. So we use it for uh, peak shaving, dynamic redundancy in the production workloads, right? Um, which is, we're the only ones doing that, right? To date, most battery usage in, in, in data centers is backup and, and storage for, for other power. VPS's ability to control the, or change the amount of redundancy 
Um, the amount of reliability to you can deliver to every rack uh, seems to be a pretty, pretty good asset for colocation providers, since they can now, um, instead of designing an entire facility to a certain level of reliability, uh, or designing a, one section of a facility to one level, another section of a facility to another, they can dynamically change um, reliability for every customer in, in the colo. Um, and they can charge them based on the level of, of reliability that they're getting. Um, can you explain how that might work for co-location providers? So the, the co-locations are interesting, and we're very involved with Equinix as well. And, and so here's the issue is um, traditional colo operators are losing workloads, particular types of workloads, to Amazon, Azure, and, and others, um, mainly because of the type of discussion um, Amazon and Azure are having with customers. You don't talk about the infrastructure when you deploy an application on AWS. You talk about level of availability, performance, amount of storage, and network available, right? Which allows a lot more freedom for hyperscale clouds on what they do with architecture. Colos, in particular Western Europe and the US, and I keep making that distinction because a lot of different things are going on in China. but. Uh, traditional data center operators are still building based on the tier classifications of data centers, one through four, which were built, th those certifications were built during a period of time where compliance required redundant power for certain reasons that no longer are, are necessarily sufficient. Um, so kind of the paradigm and the bias that Colos grew up in and building their architecture is also preventing them from competing. And, and, and giving more flexible, more affordable platforms to compete against Azure and Amazon. So Equinix, for example, is looking like, okay, how do we keep our traditional colo business, but then also create infrastructure that is more along the lines of hyperscalers that we can, instead of having a, a discussion about the physical architecture of a cage or a floor, right, how much power is going in, how much redundancy is, we purely talk about application performance, amount of storage, type of storage, and availability of that, right? Then our software comes in and, and we virtualize the power plane, which allows them to tap in and over-provision over power, um, create the same level of availability and power capacity, which would violate kind of the old tiering classifications, right? But that's not the conversation you're having with those customers. So our software would enable them essentially to compete with hyperscalers. You guys use um, some machine learning uh, functionality in the, in the system. Can you explain how that works? I'm, I'm careful with machine learning because it, it's important and we have really strong development in machine learning. But the reason I say I'm careful with it is because in, in this day and age, if machine learning isn't inherent uh, to your platform, um, you're missing something. So, and I say that, if you look, once we're embedded in these components and once we have a hardware-software link, it's not hard to write software, machine learning software, that begins to communicate predictive failures within a shelf, right? Predict uh, application usage, uh, power usage based on application. Um, combine pricing to type of power, right? So share sourcing power based on price and availability at any given time. And that's the type of machine learning we're using. Um, 
the nice thing, I think what's special about ours is uh, not only do we learn about and monitor about what's going on in the environment, you know, and I think this was the problem with DCIM, that's where it stops, right? It's kind of like, okay, here's some of the stuff that's going on within your environment. But we actually have hooks into the components, right? So we can actually control the flow of energy and power based on those behaviors. We can do it dynamically if a customer wants us to, right? Let's say the customer wants, has data centers, I'll talk about something called IceCloud, um, multiple data centers across multiple regions, and our ICE technology, that's what uh, uh, Intelligent Control of Energy is the software that is platform, is in the data centers, right? at the rack and shelf level. We're gathering all this information um, about different behaviors. Um, if the customer is multi-source of power, everything from green, biodiesel, traditional, um, they can load up their cost structures, right? And add that to our ICE Cloud uh, software, which is kind of a monitoring system of all the power behaviors across all the data centers and can divert energy and workloads based on you know, uh, cost, availability, um, margin, right? If, you know, what's your highest margin platform right now? So um, ultimately where we're going, and that's the third phase, is imagine feeding that data into vSphere. Now VMware uh, through vCenter can vMotion based on, among other things, network availability because they have NSX, but now their software power grid is, is also virtualized. Uh, you can make decisions about power availability, SLAs, costs. Now, you know, taking lots of data, analyzing it, um, coming up with um, strategy based on the analysis, um, that's, to me, that sounds like big data analytics. Um, machine learning, in my mind, is or AI is being able to, to see things that a human would not see looking at uh, the same amount of data. Like in other words, the system could um, detect anomalies or predict things um, a human simply couldn't. Um, what's the um, specific advantage of machine learning in VPSs? Situation. Well, you can tell what power shelves are more efficient, what workloads, like we're doing work right now with uh, SAP specific to HANA workloads, right? Um, we can learn very specific behaviors about power related to HANA databases in a particular um, vertical, right? Perhaps HANA draws power um, differently off of green grids and, and inventory systems versus point of sale systems. Um, and, and uh, you know, does one brand of a power component operate better at high volume or lower volumes? Um, you know, are uh, uh, power shelves from one type of architecture wearing out or uh, defaulting, you know, in aggregate more than others? Um, so the, there's nothing right now that is agnostic to all power components and all platforms that could actually determine those behaviors. Of the, at the hardware level. Explain the advantage of moving power management and energy storage a bit to the rack um, from the kind of the centralized uh, power room. It depends on, the, we can do that, right? So we can be at the rack, we can be in a row, or we can be remote. It depends on um, the particular architecture. Uh, right now, 
Um, you know, we do, it's a one switch per rack. Uh, I think it's 12 kilowatts per rack. For example, on a 10 megawatt data center, um, you're gonna have about uh, 450 racks that we could support with two batteries. Um, and just a traditional, so if, you know, if there's real estate and, and for an existing what we call brownfield data center, that's just an easy way to implement battery technology into existing architectures, right? Now, when we're talking to um, the Chinese, I mean, we're talking about some really advanced, uh, really compact, really different types of architectures to implement battery. Mm-hmm. And these, the Chinese are building or projected to build more data centers than anyone in the world. And are you talking to Chinese cloud providers? Both. So um, we're also in our, our, our Series B of fundraising, and, and most of the, the competitors to lead the round are Chinese investment funds with data center portfolios uh-huh. um, with an emphasis on battery technology. Do you foresee most of your business uh, being in China in the near future? I think that they will probably be the faster adopters, right? Because they're building new data centers with an intensity on green, right? Uh, And intensity on not just green, but uh, because of power constraints within China being efficient with uh, uh, raw power consumption and, and the technologies that optimize that. Now you explained the the part of your go-to-market strategy uh, where you guys are embedding your firmware into the data center infrastructure component suppliers like Schneider and Vertiv. Um, what's what's the rest of your go-to-market strategy? What else is there? So the first phase is to get embedded into the industry standard components and get into that refresh cycle is cloud providers, both uh, hyperscale and enterprise, upgrade their power infrastructure. The second is then to the end user, through channel partners, like uh, traditional channel partners, but then also resell with Schneider, Vertiv to their large customers. Um, The good thing about that is almost all the hyperscalers are dual vendor strategy, right? So they have a blend of multiple vendors in there. Uh, But that channel gets us to Amazon, Azure, Baidu, Alibaba, uh, we've had initial discussions in MPOC with some of those now. Uh, and then beyond that would be direct to end user. So once we're embedded into the components, then we sell the next level of our software and, and features, right? Resiliency, redundancy, peak shaving. Uh, we go in and upsell that technology into the customers that just upgraded their power infrastructure to be software defined. Now we have an entire set of technologies to add to that. And then the third part would be further penetration of the accounts with the end user um, as software defined power becomes ubiquitous for the ICE cloud uh, controls across data centers. Say I'm a data center manager at a, a big bank, for example, and you guys have sold me on your technology. Um, what's the effect on the day-to-day operations and the daily life of myself and my staff? So in, in the scenario that you just spoke about, we are talking to one of the largest banks in, in the country right now, which is also was the first adopter of, of virtualization in their data centers. Um, we try to pick the non-invasive workloads within their existing data centers. So often projects uh, that they're re-architecting anyway. 
uh, and, and work with the component suppliers uh, to um, seamlessly add in uh, whatever the functionality, if they're looking to increase the density within the existing data center without expanding power capacity, right? We put in the batteries, the switch, the software, and the new power components. Um, from a learning perspective, to the people who are managing this, it's, it's, I'm not gonna say it's nothing. Uh, it's just understanding the components and how they're connected into the environment. But it doesn't significantly change the way they manage their power infrastructure or their IT infrastructure. Where the big disruption comes in is when we build next generation data centers, right? And, and that's happening anyway. Um, I think, as I said, the Chinese are, are, are way ahead on this. Open compute, obviously. Um, has driven new architectures and new derivatives. Uh, but even traditional data center operators as an, an enterprise, private data centers, um, are questioning the status quo on data center classifications and the viability of, uh, of, of being more creative. There's just been so many technologies, not just in power, but in, you know, replicating data and the, the, you know, it's much cheaper now to have active, active data centers, right? And, and complete, uh, and, and so any one failure point isn't as drastic as it used to be. And how do you charge for this stuff? Can you explain the pricing? So the pricing in itself is, is proprietary right now, but we price on, an, there's two access, a per node. So if you consider a node based on a switch, so per I switch, a rack. And then there's a megawatt component to it. So how many racks per megawatt? Um, and of course, it's, it's a SaaS model. Um, uh, the challenge with pricing is, uh, right now, is when it's sold through OEMs, right? Because this part of, when, it, when the technology comes with your power components is, you know, and this was a challenging licensing uh, you know, a virtual machine on a server in the beginning, right? Hardware people didn't understand software licensing. Um, on the server, it was there was at least other software licensing that they were somewhat um, familiar with. But the idea of licensing infrastructure software was was kind of something that took us some time to get their heads around. In this space, it's very difficult, right? Because software, other than firmware, is very foreign to how it's bought and sold. Um, and so as we work through the OEM licensing agreements, um, we, you know, we're, we're bringing the partners, the component suppliers down the road of, of transforming their business, right? And it's no longer just components with firmware, it's value-added software on top of that. To be fair, infrastructure component vendors are getting more and more involved in software. And, and that's the good thing that's working in our favor is, and in an attempt to not be commoditized as this component supplier, they're going up stack um, to add soft, one, because customer demand, and two, just to be competitive. And so uh, while the task is hard to integrate software, uh, um, um, you know, hardware pricing and maintenance programs with software licensing programs in this space, uh, our partners are allocating the resources to get it done. Uh, because it's in their best interest as well. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about company management. Looking at Glassdoor, um, it seems that the former CEO um, wasn't universally loved by people who worked for him. Let's put it that way. What are you guys doing to um, to keep a positive atmosphere in the company, to keep staff satisfied, happy with what they're doing? 
Glass door and Yelp are great things, and I take them very, very um, seriously. In a startup, you're a small sample set. Um, the way I look at this is, um, you know, the ability to lead and create a new category doesn't grow on trees, and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of smart people. And uh, me coming into the company was acknowledgement that uh, uh, Shanker and I could work very well together. Um, while I ran the company and he provided the technology vision as executive chairman um, to, to do the heavy lifting um, to create this category and lead the category. Uh, you know, culturally, uh, are we different? Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and are there things that we address? I think so. Uh, and and I, I focus on um, producing outcomes, right? And, and being really clear with the team, what are the outcomes we have to uh, produce, right? And as a startup, you know, with 26 people, if everyone doesn't understand the outcomes and aligned, you know, that's a, that's a mess. And so we have weekly meetings uh, with all 26 people where I tell them where we are in funding, we talk about where the product is, we talk about our customer engagements. And I just found that, um, especially in a startup, Transparency is key, right? You have to enroll uh, every one of your team members every day, right? That they made the right choice, this is the right mission, and it's an exciting place to be. And so that's what I focus on. Um, and I think, you know, I think we're in a good space. Uh, the team is, is motivated and, uh, you know, we, we've got our, our uh, ice block and our ice switch, our, our product to production, and it's now commercially available. Uh, so those types of wins are really motivating and kind of takes the distortion out of personalities because if you're producing, that's what people want to do. And so getting the product out, you know, we're in proof of concepts with Uber, SAP, Equinix. Um, we have a pipeline of, of uh, four or five majors. Uh, you know, we launched our first product with Schneider. Uh, we're working with Artisan to do the same. They see the ecosystem building. So that's what I, you know, I, I've really found if you're producing things that appear in the market, like even, you know, they get excited to see these podcasts and hear that people are interested in what we're doing. I, th I think that shifts the conversation. And product-wise, what are the next steps for you guys? What are the next uh, biggest hurdles that you still have to overcome? This year is focused on primarily the OEMs, and so we, on one vector. So you should anticipate to hear more product announcements from, from Schneider as well as others, uh, we're working on those. Um, we're, we're also, uh, you'll probably hear more announcements around our production trials and validation from key customers. So our goal is to have eight referenceable major data centers uh, in production this year. Uh, from our product standpoint, uh, we'll put, we're putting out the first version of the platform, the ice block, the ice switch, and the software. Uh, towards the second half of the year, uh, you'll start hearing more about Ice Cloud, right? The the control mechanism between data centers or within data centers, and also how we implement into the IT plane, server storage, right? Uh, Hyperconverged infrastructures. Then we we start understanding how applications are working and how storage is drying, right? Flash has been massively adopted into the data center. How is that impacting power draws in an application or within hyperconverged infrastructures? And once you have those hooks in VMware or Nutanix or whatever, who becomes your end user? I think enterprise customers uh, become users and, and um, 
you know, our OEM channel now broadens to the virtualization and the compute layer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's a nice meet in the middle. Uh, you know, I was with VMware uh, for a very long time and at the early stage of adoption. And even back then, we were, th you know, we kind of had this vision if we could hook into the the power components control them, that'd be a great thing. Everyone kind of recognizes this gap in the software-defined data center, the software-defined network, to kind of close the circle, and that's the power control plane. Uh, so the customers would become, you know, enterprise customers. Whoever's deploying, you know, their, their on-premise clouds or architectures, or even their hybrid cloud strategies. Um, but again, implementing into the ecosystem would be, um, the way, you know, sold with VMware, sold with uh, Azure, um, or sold to Azure, uh, sold with uh, System Center uh, for Hyper-V. Steve, thank you very much. No, I appreciate it, good conversation. This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com.